BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. On this episode of Newt's World, in the middle of April 2007, a short, bald, and burly man with a limp and a cane walked into the west wing of the White House. He carried a small briefcase with a few folders chaotically jutting out. The man showed his diplomatic passport at the entrance. He was under the impression that he would be brought directly to the Oval Office for a private meeting with the president, but instead... The guards were under orders to keep his name off the official visitor logs and to clandestinely escort him to the office of National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. Inside, two other men were waiting, Hadley's deputy, Elliot Abrams, and a surprise guest, the Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney. The man the trio had gathered to meet was Meir Dagan, the renowned and feared head of the Mossad. Israel's legendary foreign spy agency and the equivalent of the CIA. A few days earlier, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert had called President George W. Bush and told him that Dagen would be coming to Washington with some important information. I'd appreciate if you could meet him, Olmert told Bush. The request, phrased in a way that seemed urgent, took Bush and his staff by surprise. Heads of state, even close allies like Olmert, don't usually ask the president to meet the directors of their intelligence agencies alone. If they ever do meet them, it is almost always according to diplomatic protocol and in the presence of the foreign leader. So the president's aides decided to stick to protocol. They would first meet with Dagen, evaluate whatever information he was bringing with him, and if needed, take him to see the president. Cheney was briefed about the pending visit and decided to sit in on the meeting. He knew Dagen and figured that based on Omer's special request, it must be urgent. 
Doggin took a seat on the couch. Cheney settled into a large blue wing chair to his right. Now one for small talk, Doggin got straight to the point. Syria is building a nuclear reactor, the Mossad chief said. This is the beginning of Yaakov Katz's new book, Shadow Strike, inside Israel's secret mission to eliminate Syrian nuclear power. Yaakov Katz is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. I'm pleased to have him as my guest today. There are parts of this book that are about people I know personally, and you capture them in such a way, I'm astounded by how you put it all together. So let me start by asking you, if you would start at the beginning, where you do with the book in Vienna, and before that, the impact of the Libyan announcement of a nuclear weapons program, which the Israelis did not realize existed. The story really begins with a suspicion that something nuclear was happening in Syria. And Israel just couldn't put its finger on it. It didn't know where it was coming from. It didn't know exactly what it was even. It didn't know what was happening, but it had a feeling and a hunch that something beyond the norm was going on. They knew that Syria had this Chinese reactor that was given to it by the Chinese back in like the late 80s, early 90s. They knew all the staff members, was maybe a dozen people who worked there. Nothing serious, just a research reactor. But something more was going on, and, and they couldn't figure out what it was. You mentioned Libya. In December of 2003, when Muammar Gaddafi announced that he was relinquishing his nuclear program, Israel was shocked. Israel had no clue. And Libya was a state that for years had been an enemy state to Israel. And this basically got the Israelis to realize that there could be so much more that they don't know. And that's what started this general feeling and sense of suspicion that there might be other nuclear programs that are out there. But again, when it came to Syria, they couldn't put their finger on what it was. They just had a hunch. Until Vienna. In March of 2007, agents from Israel's Mossad, the equivalent of the CIA, flew to Vienna, and they knew that visiting the city that week was going to be a Syrian nuclear scientist, the head of the Syrian Atomic Energy Commission, whose name is Ibrahim Othman. And they went into his hotel room, obviously when he wasn't there. They downloaded the contents of his computer. They brought it back to Israel. They had the material processed, and they were floored. They had pictures of a nuclear reactor under construction in northeastern Syria being constructed by the North Koreans. And really, you had pictures of the reactor, the outside structure, the core of the reactor. And the kicker, I'd like to say, is this one photo of Otman, the Syrian scientist, posing in front of a nuclear reactor together with a man of Asian ethnicity. He was wearing a blue tracksuit. And it turns out that this guy, his name is Chun Chibu, and he is the head of the Yongbyong nuclear complex in North Korea. So you right there had this amazing evidence of this nuclear cooperation between two rogue states, dangerous countries, in Israel's backyard. But that's the beginning. Now they're faced with a potential reality but they also have to verify that it's real. Correct. So they have these pictures. The first process is verification. You're 100% right. And you know anyone who's worked in Intel knows, okay, you get something, but you got to make sure that the evidence is real and you got to back it up with additional proof. So there's satellite images. They found this building in the northeastern desert of Syria that 
They couldn't tell what it was. They didn't know what it was doing there. It, lo- it didn't look like a reactor, but they quickly understood this was that building. What made it even stranger was the fact that there were no military bases nearby. There were no air defense systems nearby. It was as if they were building a nuclear reactor, but they, they weren't protecting it, which didn't make sense. But on the other hand, when Israel realized what Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, was trying to do was he was building this reactor and hiding it from the world. And if he had placed military positions nearby people would understand that this is a sensitive and important facility. This way he was able to try to continue to hide the true nature. They did the verification. They went through it, and right away, the Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Omer, understood that this facility had to go away. This was a reality that Israel cannot allow to exist. Israel is a tiny country. It's a country the size of New Jersey. It's a country without strategic depth. So a nuclear bomb that would land, let's say, in the center of the country near Tel Aviv, would be devastating for the entire country, the entire Jewish nation. It could make potential life in this state unviable, not to mention radioactive fallout to nearby states like Jordan. The width of the state of Israel is just a few dozen miles. You would have radioactive fallout all throughout the region. So it's something that Israel can't allow to happen. It's not like, you know, the nuclear weapon falls somewhere in the Midwest. The East Coast and the West Coast are still going to be okay, right? But not in Israel's case. And therefore, when an enemy state is in the process of building that capability, that's something that Israel can't live with. But, you know, we'll talk about intelligence for a moment. Israel was lucky here. Israel discovered the reactor in an advanced stage of construction. It had been under construction for years. When it discovered it, it realized that the Syrians were just a few months away from making it active, from installing the fuel rods, and the reactor would go hot. If they were going to take action, they had a very narrow window. So it was really amazing luck that they managed to discover it when they did. Next, Yaakov Katz explains Israeli Prime Minister Omer's dilemma. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know. 
What were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Prime Minister Elmart has a dilemma because under the Israeli doctrine that they'll never risk Holocaust by having an enemy with a weapon of mass destruction, something has to be done to get rid of this reactor. And it has to be relatively timely before it goes hot and actually starts producing nuclear material because potentially bombing it after it starts producing nuclear material could cause a substantial amount of damage in the region. But his first big hurdle yeah, is the Americans, because he ideally would like them to solve it for him. But if they're not going to solve it, he needs them to be on his side if he solves it. Could you walk through what the American problem was at that point or why it was so difficult to get them to operate? I think that this is really one of the big parts of the story. Omar realizes from the get-go this thing has to disappear. Israel cannot live with a nuclear reactor in Syria. The question is how to do it. In March of 2007, when Israel discovers this reactor, we are just seven months after the war in Lebanon that was known as the Second Lebanon War against Hezbollah. It was a war that ended poorly for Israel. There was no decisive victory. Hezbollah was still there. They had managed to fire over 4,000 rockets in a month. They caused devastation, destruction. They killed over 122 soldiers, dozens of civilians. There were calls for Omer to step down because of the failures of that war. He, under pressure, appointed a state commission of inquiry to look into those failures, which would then, a month later, release its interim report, which would be damning for him and for the defense minister and for the chief of staff. So that's the context, right? Now, Omer knows this. The IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, is in the process of rehabilitating and repairing itself. There were many flaws that were discovered during that war, and they're rebuilding itself. And they're learning those lessons to be able to apply them in case there is a future war. So that's context one, which is extremely important, because one of the reasons that Omer wanted the Americans to do it was if America carries out the attack, there's less of a chance of a retaliation against Israel, and then Israel won't find itself in a major war. That was a small reason. The bigger reason was what Omar was thinking about Iran. If Israel bombed Syria, he's told his staff at the time, the Iranians would say, okay, that's expected. Right? Israel took out the Osirak reactor in Iraq in 1981. Now they took out the Syrian reactor in 2007. But if America attacked Syria, if the U.S. sent its plane and bombed the Syrian reactor, that would make the Iranians think really, really hard. And as we all know, back in 2003, when the U.S. was building up its forces in the Persian Gulf ahead of the invasion of Iraq, 
That's when the Iranians suspended their nuclear program because they feared at the time that they would be next in line. Bush went after the Taliban, Bush went after Saddam, and maybe he'd go after the Iranians next. And for two years, they suspended everything because when there's a credible military threat on the table, the Iranians calculate differently. So Omar knew that if Bush were to attack the Syrian reactor, that could potentially get the Iranians to say, whoa, we're dealing with a different U.S. president. We have to be careful. And that would have such strategic benefit, not just for Israel. This would have been a gift to the entire world. So he sends his head of the Mossad, Mayor Dagan, to Washington, D.C. in April of 2007 with those photos that the Mossad had obtained in Vienna. He goes to a meeting with Steve Hadley, the National Security Advisor, Elliot Abrams, Hadley's deputy, the deputy on the National Security Council in charge of the Middle East portfolio, and a surprise guest who decided to sit in on the meeting because he was intrigued. Why is the head of the Mossad coming to meet us? Dick Cheney, Vice President of the United States. And he lays out the photos. He shows them everything, which, as you know, Newt, from your vast experience, that doesn't often happen, right, that you bring raw intelligence. Usually you bring an analysis. You share with them some ideas or conceptions. Here was the raw intelligence, and it was because Israel really wanted to get the Americans on board. And that set off a whole process on the U.S. side of what their considerations would be. Bush set up two different teams to consider and debate and plan over a period of two and a half, three months. They came up with a wide variety of options, from a straightforward airstrike to a covert operation sitting in special forces to bombing just a part of the facility, not the entire facility, until ultimately the proposal that they came up with, which Bush accepted and decided that this is what he wanted, was a multi-tier plan that would first see the public outing of Assad, denouncing and revealing the existence of the reactor to the world, taking him to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, in Vienna, then to the Security Council in New York, imposing sanctions, demanding the destruction of the reactor, and if all that failed, then U.S. military force. And when he told that to Omer, in July of 2007, that that was his decision, Omer said to Mr. President, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. I've told you this needed to disappear. It needed to go away. And if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I tell him the book how in the Oval that day, I think it was July 13th, it was a Friday, you had Bush on the phone with Omer. Omer was in Jerusalem, Bush in D.C. You had Hadley and Abrams in the Oval together with him, listening on different phone receivers. And Abrams later told me how he was terrified that after this phone conversation with the Israeli prime minister, basically, I, I don't know of a better word than to say, just had chutzpah, right? I mean, talked back to the U.S. president. That's not something you think happens that often. He thought the president would be furious. But instead, the president puts down the phone and says, you know what? I like that guy. He's got guts. And as Hadley later explained to me, President George W. Bush respected leaders who stood up for the conviction, respected leaders who stood up for what they believed was right, and recognized that Israel saw this differently than the United States. And therefore, even when later, Bob Gates comes to him, Condoleezza Rice comes to him and says, you have to stop Omer, you can't let him attack. Bush said, no, it's an existential threat to Israel. Israel views this differently than us. If it wasn't for Israel, we wouldn't have even known about it. If this is what Israel is going to do, we're not going to stop them. And that's also to Bush's credit. The other amazing piece of all this is the 
the two-step process, one of using commandos to verify the reactor and doing so apparently so covertly that the Syrians didn't realize it had happened, and then the other was the training and the focus on the mission itself. Can you talk first about this remarkable intervention by helicopter-borne commandos and which I thought was as interesting as anything in the whole book. Right. It's a pretty fascinating story. Israel bombed the reactor in September 6, 2007. But in August, Olmert, together with the IDF, decides to send a small team of commandos to the area near the reactor. And it was a twofold objective. The first was, again, verification. They wanted to see it on their own. They wanted to take some samples of the soil. They wanted to get some really close proximity photographs of what was happening there and see it from the ground of what were the real installations that were nearby, what type of resistance potentially existed. But also what they wanted to do was to create a capability to be able to send a covert mission to destroy the reactor. Because once they decided in Israel that the way to destroy it was to do it as quietly as possible and never to take credit for it, then what they wanted to do was do it in a way that would not lead anyone directly back to Israel. So there were a lot of plans that were thought of. For example, the easiest would be to send 20 aircraft over the reactor, drop your bombs. But you send 20 fighter planes, everyone knows where they came from. That's on one end of the spectrum. The other extreme would be to send in a small group of commandos, like those guys who went there on that August raid, just with some explosives, to infiltrate the actual facility attach the explosives, and bring down the facility. And that raid in August was meant to show and to prove that they have the capability to get as close and to get to the reactor. Ultimately, they decided against that. The chief of staff felt that that was too big a risk for a couple of reasons. One was the risk to the actual commandos. If one got caught, people got captured. Two was what happens if they don't have enough explosives to take down the entire building. And they felt that it was more important to go with the safer route of complete destruction of the reactor, but not to do it as in a massive aerial operation, to do it small. So only with about five, six aircraft. That was it. And in the end, that's how they took it out. The pilots started training early on. Now, they handpicked the pilots from a bunch of different squadrons. And, and as you know, Newt, in Israel, you have your standing military, but you also have your reservists, especially in the Air Force. The reservists continue to fly till they're 45, sometimes even till they're 50. This group of pilots started training weekly, regularly, for a mission that they were told was going to be about six to 700 kilometers away from Israel. They didn't know where it was. They weren't told the country. They weren't told what the target would be. But they had to train because, as I later discovered, and I wrote about this in the book, I tell how Ehud Barak, former prime minister, who at the time was the defense minister, the morning after the bombing, goes home and stands on the balcony of his apartment on one of these high-rise apartment buildings in Tel Aviv overlooking the city. And he was on the 20th floor. And as he's standing there drinking his morning coffee, he realizes, he's like, holy cow, the pilots flew lower than my apartment all the way to Syria. Because to avoid radar detection, they had to fly low, super low, just a couple hundred feet above the ground. So that's what they had to train for, and they had to train a lot for that, to be able to do that and do that right. Only the day of the attack, so that afternoon, were they told where they were going 
and what their target was going to be. So imagine for a moment, you're a pilot in the Israeli Air Force. You've been training for a mission. You have no clue what it is. You know it's important because no one's telling you too much. You know it's got to be something big. But then you're told it's a nuclear reactor just over the border in Syria. You know, the pilots told me this. Years later, they were shaking with emotion still because of just how they recognized and realized this is not just another mission. This is a mission to save and to ensure the continued survival of the, of the only Jewish state in the world. I wonder if they had the same feeling back in 81, that, that there are those moments when, you know, it's not just it's not just a job or even just a mission, but that this could be a decisive event in enabling your country to literally survive, which is something that non-Israelis, because of the difference in size and scale, it's hard for us to realize how, on the one hand, stunningly prosperous Israel is, and on the other hand, how every morning, how close it is to a potential disaster. I think this is one of those moments, and that's why the story is so interesting and so important. Because of the silence in Israel for so many years, it never got its proper place. People know about the bombing of the Iraqi reactor, and there was a similar case there. You're 100% right, that then, too, the pilots were training for a mission, which was farther away, right? And they weren't told what the target was. They didn't know. They drew imaginary circles around the state of Israel, 800 miles that they were told they would have to fly back in 81. And they didn't know, they, they thought, you know, maybe we're going to Iran, maybe we're going to somewhere in Egypt, maybe we're going yeah, yeah, to Iraq, but what's in Iraq? They knew it was reactive, but they never thought that, that, that Israel was going to attack it at the time. And then just a couple of days before the mission, they were revealed what their target was going to be. And I think that these are those moments that these people are created for, without a doubt. At one level, it's not surprising because the Israeli Air Force has a remarkable record. They had to do it in a very constrained way because they didn't want the footprint to be big enough that the Syrians had to notice it. They also had to do it this way because only a handful of people in Israel knew about it. So they kept the pilots in the dark because they didn't want to run even the risk that the pilots would say something to somebody and then it would get out. The plan was all dependent on one thing and one thing only, that Assad didn't know that Israel knew about it. Because the moment Assad would have discovered that Israel knew about his reactor, it's as Michael Hayden said, the head of the CIA at the time, he would send the busload of kindergarten kids, put them in the reactor, and then Israel would never be able to attack. No one would be able to attack. Right? So everything was dependent on Assad not knowing that we knew about it. And that's why only a select few people could actually know what was really happening. And if I remember correctly, at this point, he's also under huge pressure with a corruption scandal. So on the one side, he's weakened domestically, and he's about to make one of the most important decisions in Israeli history. Without a doubt. The two big real achievements of Olmert here, I think, that make this story so unique is exactly what you just said. I mentioned the context of the Second Lebanon War. You mentioned the, the corruption allegations against him, which eventually would send him to jail, the first Israeli prime minister to go to jail. But I just want to take you back to that March meeting when Dagan, the head of the Mossad, brings those photos to Olmert. They're sitting in his office in Jerusalem. And as Omar is looking at the photos and digesting that literally his world has now changed, right? There's a knock on the door of his office. He says, go away. The knocking persists. The door opens and it's his spokesperson. 
And he says, not now. And the spokesperson says, no, I need to ask you a question because it's almost the 8 o'clock news. That's the prime time uh, TV news in Israel. And we just got a question. They're about to unveil or reveal in our news report another criminal investigation against you. What should we respond? And Omer said, I don't care. Get the hell out of here. But I mention that because with the problems that we saw in the Lebanon war, the corruption allegations against him, and the fact that you have a U.S. president who says, listen, I got your back. I'll take care of it. It's not the way you want me to, but I will ultimately take care of it. He had all the reasons in the world to say, I'm going to go with the Americans on this. Right? He's got the U.S. president who says, I got your back. He's got the head of the IDF who's saying, listen, there's a 50% chance we're going to have a war, not with Hezbollah, but with the Syrian military, the largest and most lethal conventional military that is a threat to us still today. And this is back in 2007. And the corruption allegations, he could have gone with the Americans. And he stood up and he said no. I think that was that first major act of bravery. And I think the second thing, which is striking for me, Israel had a policy that it wasn't going to speak about what it did. Its strategy was, if it stays quiet, it believed that it could create something called the deniability zone that Assad would move into. Because so little people knew and so few people knew in Syria about this, that if Israel never said anything, Assad would sweep it under the rug and he wouldn't retaliate because he'd prefer not to go to war. And that's ultimately what happened. But Olmert, who leaves office in 2009, who later gets indicted, who then gets convicted, who then gets sentenced, who then appeals and gets sentenced again, who gets sent to jail, who leaves jail, at all those points along the way could have stood up and said, are you guys crazy? I saved all of you. I saved you from a nuclear weapon. But he never did that. To me, that's impressive. At no point did he try to use this for political benefit. We shouldn't take that for granted. But I think part of that is they had reached a conclusion that if he did take credit for it, it would become a public event and Assad would feel compelled to retaliate. Correct. Whereas if he behaved as though nothing had happened, it allowed the Syrians to behave as though nothing had happened. Exactly. It's a brilliant strategy executed with enormous discipline. I can tell you as a journalist who's been covering the political and military echelons in this country for about two decades now, you don't see that discipline on every issue. This was unique in that sense. I think it was because having been through the Lebanon War, which did not go well for Omar, he realized if he could find a way to eliminate the threat without starting a war with Syria, that would be enormous change. I'd known him for many years, but my respect for his patriotism, his discipline, and his understanding of priorities really skyrocketed when I read your book. I thought it was a remarkable achievement on his part. Coming up, 12 years after the mission, we'd be living in a very different world if the Israelis hadn't acted. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. When you look back both at the Osirak Iraqi reactor, which was taken out by Israel in 81, and you look at the reactor in Syria that was taken out in 2007, on both occasions, Israel did an enormous service to the entire planet by reducing the danger of nuclear weapons falling into truly irresponsible and truly dangerous hands. That's something that, frankly, Israel does not get enough credit for. I think you're 100% right. Israel is the only country in the world today to have taken action and removed two nuclear reactors that were a threat, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. You go back to 1981, and you'll remember this. At the time, the U.S. administration, the Reagan administration, was not happy that Israel took that unilateral step. But, you know, 10 years later, during the first Gulf War, an Operation Desert Storm, when Dick Cheney then was actually the Secretary of Defense, he recognized that if Israel hadn't taken out that reactor 10 years earlier, Operation Desert Storm might not have been possible because Saddam would have had nuclear weapons. When we look back now, 12 years that have passed since the destruction of the Syrian reactor, now imagine that there had been the civil war that was in Syria, Imagine that ISIS had taken over that territory where that reactor once stood, which it did. In 2014, ISIS conquered the region known as Dira Zur, near the Euphrates River in northeastern Syria, where that reactor stood. And imagine ISIS had gotten its hands on a nuclear reactor. 
you would have radioactive dirty bombs throughout the world, right? It, Israel did a service not just to itself, but to the entire world. And, and you know, forget about ISIS even for a moment. Bashar al-Assad has showed the world in the last eight years of the civil war in Syria that he has no red lines. He's willing to use chemical weapons against his own people. You have over half a million people who have been killed in the civil war. What would have stopped him from using a nuclear weapon against Israel, against his own people? Who knows? Right? It would be a different world that we would live in today. And I think that it's so important also because when we think about the Iranians and the possibility and prospect that one day they will get their hands on nuclear weapons, this needs to be the alarm bell. We need to be listening to it because if, if Iran gets its hands on nuclear weapons, that's a game changer as well. And they have to be stopped before they have it. That's when they need to be stopped, not after they get it. I think it is a remarkable story. And you do literally a novelist job of writing it so brilliantly that it's a page turner all the way through. I'm really delighted that you had spent this amount of time. Is there anything else you want to add to it? The only thing I want to say, Newt, is that you're an amazing person. I want to thank you for everything you do and how you stand with the state of Israel. And really thank you for that. Thank you to my guest, Yaakov Katz. You can read an excerpt of his book, Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners at Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. 
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.